You're listening to Different Things Can Be Sad. Hello and welcome to Different Things Can Be Sad, where it's cool to care about politics and pop culture. I'm Yasmin Lomax. And I'm Mike Ott. And we are your hosts of this monthly politics and pop culture podcast. So as we usually do, we kick off with a little how was your month before diving into our recommendations and then educating you and ourselves about all matters, politics and pop culture. So Micah, how was February 2022? What did you get up to? Did you celebrate Valentine's Day? It was good. Um <laughs> Yes, I had a friend come visit, which was amazing. Um, Love to see people I haven't seen in a while. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I live on the West Coast, um, winter is almost over and there are flowers out and it's beautiful. Um, So that was lovely. Uh, Did I celebrate Valentine's Day? Sort of. I bought my boyfriend some pickles. Romance. (laughs) That sounds like um, a euphemism, but I know it's not. It really was not. It was no. these really good pickles that are cold packed. Um, would recommend Hobbs Pickles if you're in Canada. Uh, not sponsored. Uh, <laughs> this episode about- is brought to you by Pickles. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's about it for February, though. That sounds like a lovely month. Um, I've had a pretty chill one. It's been very cold here in New York. We've had some bouts of snow so it's been a lot of just sitting inside cozying up doing a lot of reading which i will get to soon uh also celebrated valentine's day i went to see a brooklyn nets and sacramento kings game Mm. and i was kind of excited about this because tristan thompson uh chloe kardashian's notoriously pretty evil Mm ex-boyfriend um plays for the kings or should i say played for the kings i think he got traded like literally a few days before we went to the game and i kind of thought it would be cool to see uh a famous person there but he wasn't i don't know a lot about basketball and the players so the fact that there would be like a tabloid celebrity there was interesting to me there was a guy who was a voice in mitchell versus the machines and in an episode of broad city there so that that was pretty cool and one of the Mumford and Sons was in the crowd. So Wow. Yeah, I don't know which one, but not the main one that's married mm-hmm. to Carrie Mulligan. So a pretty successful February, I would say. Amazing. So I mentioned some reading. Let's start off with what you read this month, Micah. I somehow got very far into three different books, so I will talk to you about them next month. But the book I did finish... It's an audiobook I listened to called Transcendent Kingdom by Yagyasi. Or Yagyasi, I think. There's two A's in her name. Um, it was great. I will read you the uh, Goodreads summary because it's hard to summarize myself. So, Gifty is a fifth-year candidate in neuroscience at Stanford School of Medicine studying reward-seeking behavior in mice and the neural circuits of depression and addiction. Her brother, Nana, was a gifted high school athlete who died of a heroin overdose after a knee injury left him hooked on OxyContin. Her suicidal mother is living in her bed. Gifty is determined to discover the scientific basis for the suffering she sees all around her. So, not a light book. 
Um, no, I definitely no. saw this in the bookstore and it has a beautiful cover that it I was does. like, oh, cool. Like a fun little read. And then I, it was about it's a not lot a fun of death. little read, but it's really yeah. interesting. It kind of um, interweaves the present moment of B- Gifty being in her PhD with the past of her growing up um, with immigrant parents um, and in the South. Um, and I think the, the two themes I really thought were interesting were the interweaving of um, science and the use of like the science in her research to like a forward story, which was really cool. Um, and then how that discussion of science is in contrast and adds to discussions of religion. Um, mm. Her mother in the book is very devoutly religious and a big part of her like immigrant experience is being part of a Baptist church um, or an evangelical church. Yes, she came from a Baptist church. Um, I thought it was a really interesting reflection about like both the immigrant story, but then also the kind of pulls between science and religion and faith. And, like, how do you have faith in science? Um, I thought it was lovely. I loved the audiobook. It was really well done um, and, like, added a great layer to it that you might not have gotten either. You also, like, learn how to pronounce the names and there's, like, some language stuff in there that I would have no idea, like, what it sounded like. So I thought that was really great. That is a really good point. Um, Last month when I started reading the A Court of Thorns and Roses series by Sarah J. Mass, which if you have like spoken to me in real life over the past two months, it's all I speak about. I started it as an audiobook and I ended up moving to like, I don't want to say an actual book, but like a written book mm-hmm. um, just because I wanted that more like reading experience. But I found it really helpful because yeah, the, the, the narrator said the names and with this particular series, I had seen so much discussion online of people debating how to pronounce certain names Mm -hmm. and being disappointed when they were like, oh my gosh, I've been calling it the wrong name for a year. So definite benefit of audiobooks. I agree, Micah. Mm -hmm. So how was A Court of Throne? Thorns and Roses? Is that Okay, I called it Thrones and Roses for the whole first book, but it's Thorns and Roses. Yeah, I finished. Yes. Yeah. So I finished the third book in the main series this month. And then the accompanying novella and the first spin-off book. Wow. So yeah, I got pretty deep into it. It's just it's really like reignited a love for reading for me. Like I I read a lot anyway, but this is really jump started even more because it just feels so much like that teenage reading experience Mm -hmm. where you just could not stop and you would like stay up late at night seeing what Katniss was going to do next in the arena so I just want to give those books another shout out for being so much freaking fun I have ended up reading I think we're recording this towards the end of February I have so far read I think 11 books this month which is Damn. one of my yeah one of the like the better in my adult life I think I've just been very very into it and I want to shout out two that I loved the most I don't did I love them the most or were they just they were fascinating in a, in a very strange way um Migrations by Charlotte McConaughey is definitely the the one that I love the most. I don't Mm -hmm. actually want to say too much about the plot of this one because it unfolds in 
so many unexpected directions, but I will say that it centers on um, a woman named Franny Stone, who is Irish Australian, and she has a singular mission to follow the last Arctic turns in the world on what might be their final migration to Antarctica. So it has a kind of like Moby Dick quality in that way. It's very much about like climate change because it's set in this distant future where most animals have gone extinct, but it is a lot about her personal uh, history that's woven into the current Mm. story of her trying to find the turns. And it's the kind of book that I wish we read in like high school literature because there is so much like symbolism to unpack it just it made me feel so much and i just absolutely adored it so 100% recommend migrations i also read and i want to get the author's last name right because i keep adding an extra r in where there's not one <laughs> but i read the paper palace by miranda cowley heller i always call it crowley or crowley now this one especially if you look up the cover, I think it is giving crawdads vibes. Like it, ah, yes. it's, I'm calling it the next crawdads, but it's a story about a 50 year old woman named Elle, who's very happily married. I, this was a Reese's book club pick mm. and maybe it's going to be turned into like a movie or a series. If it does, I'm sure Reese will be Elle. But she is spending the summer at her family's kind of like passed down through generations holiday home on the Cape. And even though she's happily married, she does the the night before this hook up with her oldest friend. And we then follow her through the next 24 hours as she has to make a decision between her husband and her friend. And it is very stunningly written. It does a lot of like the whole her backstory is also interwoven in this there's a lot of interwoven backstories must be like the theme of this month yeah um this one has like some pretty graphic and disturbing abuse scenes especially like abuse of children and like sexual abuse so Mm. i don't know it kind of like didn't sit 100 right with me as a final as a whole book because like those bits were just so hard to stomach but it is so beautifully written and it really I, I think I read it in about 24 hours. I, I couldn't get enough. So definitely an interesting one as well. And one we will probably hear a lot of, even though it came out last year, maybe this summer will be the year it becomes the new crawdads. <laughs> How about watching? Did you watch anything fun this month? Ugh, I watched so many things. Um, oh, always watching. Um, I finally finished top of the lake both season one and two i say Mm -hmm. finally because we were watching them on dvd and like halfway through this second season our dvd remote broke and would not work and so then we had to wait to get a new one it was dramatic i would not recommend this experience um but wait as a could you not have gone on streaming and finished this is my disclaimer so top of the lake is filmed in New Zealand, but in, and the second one is filmed in Australia, um, and they are cut differently. So in New Zealand and Australia, there are six episodes, and in North America, there are seven. Oh. Same amount of footage, but edited differently. Um, oh, how strange. Especially the first mo- like series, it's just one long movie cut into parts. 
Right. Um, Bit of a Twin Peaks thing. Yeah, yeah. So if you we, – we went to, like, go watch it on whatever. I think even in the UK it's cut differently. We, and then we realized we, like, didn't know what episode we were on because we, they, we were watching different versions. Oh. Very frustrating. But worth it because it's so good. So Top of the Lake – the first season came out in 2013 and the second 2017. Um, it's a crime mystery show by director Jane Campion, um, who just did Power of the Dog. Um, and first one set in like very rural New Zealand. And the second series is set in like middle of Sydney, Sydney in Australia. The like finale takes place on Bondi Beach and like crazy shenanigans um it stars elizabeth moss who is a fantastic actress but has a like passable to bad new zealand accent through the whole thing um it's it gets better in the second season i think um and it's it's very dark it's very stressful to watch um it has some of the least likable characters on television are you describing um, euphoria, Micah? What's yeah, going yeah. on here? Um, less teenagers. <laughs> the the one teenager in the second season just like cannot make a good decision for herself. Ugh. And it's so hard <laughs> to watch. Um, and the whole show follows the central like rule of any Jane Campion movie or work. It's that men should not be trusted and in general men are bad. Um, so that gives you the sense of like the vibe. Uh, it's really interesting. I would give yourself like the mental space to watch it because it's quite dark. Um, the other thing that I want to talk to you about that I've watched is Parallel Mothers, which is a movie starring Penelope Cruz. It's um, the newest Almodovar movie. So Almodovar is a very famous Spanish director. This was my first movie of his, which was wild because he's like quite prolific. I'm sure um, this would be many people's first movie, Michael, yeah, or I'm sure many people true. have never watched a single one, so don't this worry. Is true. I just, like, <laughs> they've been coming up a lot. He, like, this is up, Penelope Cruz is up for the Oscar for this. Oh, wow. And his last one with Antonio Banderas and Penelope Cruz had, like, huge, huge Oscar buzz two years right. ago. So I feel like I should have seen that one. Did not. Anyways, this one, if you are a listener of the podcast, you know it's right up my alley because it's about mothers. Yes. Um, we love them. So Penelope Cruz is a photographer in Barcelona or Salona, if uh, you speak Spanish. The Spanish accents in this are fantastic. Um, she is a single she's about to give birth and be a single mom and she meets this teenager in the hospital who's also about to give birth Mm -hmm. and in the following weeks after having her baby she starts to suspect that her baby isn't hers like there's been a mix-up like there's been a switched at birth situation oh um and so this story of like her trying to figure out what the truth is is put in parallel with her journey to try and find resolution to her family's history with the Spanish Civil War. Um, Her grandfather was killed um, at the beginning of the war, and there's a mass grave that they think he's in. And so she's trying to get this archaeologist to help her uncover that history. So it is kind of like two parallel mothers, her and the other mother, her and the story. Um, It's really beautiful. The acting is amazing. 
um, really like a tight movie. I just loved it. It was great. Um, like an accessible, like if you want to watch a foreign movie, like very accessible to watch for sure. Well, you gave a great recommendation with Worst Person in the World last month, so Mm. I trust you on this one. Just me watching all the 2021 foreign movies, apparently. (laughs) Well, I did watch Worst Person in the World, but since we talked about that last month, I believe, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to discuss two other movies I watched this month that I adored and are very different. So the first one (laughs) is called I Want You Back. It's on Amazon Prime, mm. and it's an Amazon Prime movie starring Charlie Day and Jenny Slate as newly dumped 30, maybe 40-somethings who bond over their heartbreak and then hatch a plan to get their exes, who are played by Gina Rodriguez and Scott Eastwood, back to them, even though both the exes have already moved on. So this is like my perfect movie because it's a great rom-com. You know, Mm -hmm. I just feel like we're not making enough great rom-coms lately. We're doing either these like strange artsy ones where like I'm supposed to believe that Ed Helms and Keira Knightley are in a relationship or something strange Mm -hmm. like that. And it's all filmed on like a dark camera or we're doing like the, the real cheesy netflix ones which i do love but like not as a a rom-com you know and this is more in the vein of set it up and someone great um movies that i think are like the two best streaming era Mm rom-coms this one is like definitely joining the top three now it is just laugh out loud funny and it oozes charm. Like, especially Charlie Day and Jenny Slade as romantic leads are so freaking good. They are so naturally funny and just charismatic. So I cannot recommend this one enough. I spoken to a few other people who watched it and most people were like, oh, great, like a rom-com and then watched it and thought, okay, this is actually brilliant. It's just so much fun to watch and really well done. So highly recommend that. I also watched a movie from the 1970s which is unusual for me because i don't really do old-timey stuff called picnic <laughs> the 1970s is old-timey it's old-timey yeah if we don't have internet old-timey so i watched picnic and hanging rock have you seen this one micah i haven't i have been meaning to watch it for like literally years because it was coming up on my Tumblr feed alongside the Virgin Suicides a lot. Yeah. So it has literally been on my radar as like a of that whole vibe since I was like 14. <laughs> but it is about a – so it's set in 1900, and it's about a group of Australian girls who go to this like fancy boarding school. And on Valentine's Day, they all go for a picnic at the titular Hanging Rock. But – Three of them and a teacher mysteriously disappear. So Mm. pretty cool. It's based on a book by Joan Lindsay as well, which came out um, a few years before that. And I think the reason I love this movie so much is there's kind of like two things that make a movie good in my eyes. Like if it's a good like comedy or if it has vibes and this Mm -hmm. one like nails vibes of course when harry met sally will always be like the number one movie because it's vibes and perfect rom-com but the vibes in this just like impeccable um if you liked the sort of aesthetic that word is now grating me so much Mm -hmm. of the virgin suicides you will love this it has 
the similar very dreamy elements, you know, these mysterious girls with long hair and these romantic lace dresses. There's this kind of like heady femininity of all these teenage girls hanging out together. There's even like font choices and like food shown throughout that feel very of the same ilk. And this one manages to be even more haunting. Like there's definitely a supernatural Mm. element of this that's really highlighted by a stunning score. Like it's a like stop you breathing score. It's so good. (laughs) And a lot of these creative cinematic choices, like there's a lot of ways they enhance the cruelness of the Australian summer heat and of all the terrifying animals in the environment and the rock might be supernatural. So definitely a movie I would recommend. It feels like it wouldn't be in my normal wheelhouse of things, but adored it. So definitely recommend that one. How about listening? Have you done any good listening? Well, is this really our podcast if we don't mention the new serial podcast? True. We're always trendsetters like that. We always listen to the podcast that everyone else is listening to. Um, yeah. which I haven't I haven't listened to it fully yet, but I like it so far. Um, if you haven't heard, it's called The Trojan Horse Affair. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really interesting. Um, it's basically investigates the origins of a letter that ended up fundamentally changing the both the education and the national security system in the UK mm-hmm. in 2014. So the letter essentially accused a school in Birmingham of, or Birmingham. Um, Birmingham. Of, Birmingham. 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 Yeah. Birmingham. <laughs> um, the letter accused the school of indoctrinating students and trying to recruit them into Islamic terrorism or extremism. Um, And this led to like this big investigation and the Tories like brought in all these rules and like a lot of people lost their jobs and no one ever investigated whether the letter was like real or not. And like what the motivations of the letter were. Huh. Um, And so the, podcast goes in and tries to like uncover who the letter was from and it's really interesting it's um the guy who did s-town yes and then it's um this journalism student from birmingham who used to be a doctor and then decided to leave medicine to become a journalist interesting profession Um, who's all he's muslim and like part of the community um and yeah, so it's like an interesting dynamic between the two of them and this guy like learning how to be a journalist in like this huge platform and like a really big story. Um, so I found it really interesting so far. We love a serial podcast. They're always good and interesting, really well produced. Um, so would recommend. Agreed. I'm excited to get into that one. I need a new podcast to up the collection this <laughs> month though i have been listening to a lot of very chill music as i write i've finally taken you up on your noah reed recommendation mm. um our beloved Shit's creek actor but <laughs> i've also got very into Aoife o'donovan this month um she is an irish american singer songwriter from massachusetts and she was in two successful groups, Crooked Still and I'm With Her, but has also had a lot of success as a solo artist. And one of her solo albums, The Age of Apathy, came out in late January. 
I like randomly stumbled across the titular Mm. song, like maybe in one of those Spotify curated playlists and it is beautiful. So I've really enjoyed listening to the rest of the album. It's almost kind of like the Joni Mitchell-esque. It's very, Mm -hmm. it's, it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. Um, I've really enjoyed listening to that while working. So I would definitely recommend that album. The first track, especially, I think will have you uh, hooked. It's called Sister Star. It's just gorgeous. Politics. What, what a month. A month. Oh, jinx. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry that our last episode was really timely. Um, we don't have a warm update. Yeah. Yeah. Update war. Um, yeah. I thought this month, um, thinking about Wordle, which is still on the brain. Ooh, a Wordle aside, if you like politics, um, and geopolitics specifically, there is a game called world that Mm. is of the same vein. It gives you a country just the shape and you have to guess what country it is oh this is um, kind of fun and with each guess they tell you how close you are in clicks because clicks um and what direction it is and then they give you like a percentage closeness um it's a fun time would recommend um but inspired by our discussion of Wordle last month and um and a desire to not talk about war or the alt-right um i thought we'd talk a little bit about something entirely different um and that is the politics of language revitalization um so i thought i would tell you a little bit about language revitalization why i would argue it's political and others too and then i'd give you like two interesting examples of how that would work though there are like hundreds um so what is language re- revitalization? Wow, I'm going to stumble over that word so many times. Really excited. I did this to myself. Um, according to Wikipedia, our one and only source for information in this current era that gives really good definitions, um, language revitalization is an attempt to halt or reverse the decline of a language or to revive an extinct one. So... The idea of language revitalization is an attempt to increase or maintain the number of people who speak a language. So actually speak, not just read and write. Um, So that it doesn't become lost or the technical term is like a language death. And language death occurs when there are no more native speakers of a language. Um, Which is something that actually occurs quite a bit. That like, like the diversity of flora and fauna on the planet, the diversity of languages has also been decreasing since globalization um, as people like kind of naturally as like we um, become like bigger states that have big languages. Like an example of this is Italy um, became a state only quite recently, like just right before World War One, and there used to be many different little types of like Italian-like dialects, and now it's mostly, it's only like Italian from I think it's from Rome. Um, same thing with like England, but also as we'll talk about, languages have been forcefully gotten rid of through like colonial projects. Um, 
languages are deeply important to how we not only communicate with each other, but also they're deeply tied to culture. And so there's a fear that if a language dies, then part of a culture will also disappear as well. Especially because like many languages are only spoken, they aren't written in any way. Um, and as we'll like talk about a little bit, lang victims of language death are often minorities and often persecuted minorities. Um, and like the way that so on the other hand of like there's language death, language re revitalization is the process of trying to like get more people to speak the language. Um, and that often like to get that to happen requires like quite a bit of political power and clout. So David Crystal in his book Language Death proposes like um, things that are necessary for language revitalization to be successful. And I would argue like all of these things are like deeply tied to politics. So one of them is the language has to have like a deep prestige within the dominant community. So if your language is denigrated within the community, then it's hard for it to continue. Um, you also need access to wealth and income um, so that you can build schools, uh, like do commerce in the language. Um, and that also requires access to political power. Um, the community also needs to have a legitimate power in the eyes of the dominant community. So they have to be seen as a like community that is valuable and has a need to exist. Um, it needs to have a strong presence in the education system. That one's kind of self-explanatory. Governments run schools often. Um, and then the last two are kind of like tacit things. You need to be able to write the language down so that it can be passed on. So in the second example, we'll talk about part of the language revitalization project was creating a written system for it. Um, and then the last one is like a modern one is that you need to be able to use electronic technology. The idea being that like, if you can communicate about it online, um, that's really helpful. A lot of people who speak like languages that are dying or going extinct are old people who can't use the internet. So having young people, and that's like a big part of language revitalization, getting young people to learn how to speak the language. And for a language to be revitalized, have it as their native tongue. Like not just be able to speak it, but like learn it from birth. Um, that, according to David Crystal, he argues, is like an important way that it'll continue on. So all this like deeply enmeshed in local politics and each example is very different. But I think it's really interesting because I think both like Yaz and I, we speak English, the dominant language of the world currently. Um, and so we don't really think about languages disappearing as often. Absolutely, yeah. Um, the first example I want to talk about is Hebrew, um, which is a deeply political form of language revitalization because it's deeply tied to nation building. Um, so there are many languages that have disappeared, but Hebrew is the only um, language that has ever been revived. Um, namely that it was dead, there were no native speakers, it wasn't a thing people talked about, and then now there are millions of people whose native tongue is Hebrew. And it like over centuries of no one speaking it. That's pretty it's incredible, kind of, isn't it? 
yeah, it's like yeah. a feat of will, honestly. Mm. Um, so there's a couple reasons how Hebrew kind of became came back. Um, part of that is um, Israel, obviously. Um, part of the kind of national ethos and goal of Israel is to create a home for and a nation for all Jewish peoples. Um, one of the problems that um, the state of Israel, but also Zionists before that Israel was created, so people who wanted a state for Jews, um, is that like not all Jews can talk to each other. They don't have a lingua franca. Um, so a lingua franca is uh, the language used to communicate in between people. So say you're like studying abroad and there's a lot of different students there, oftentimes the lingua franca would be English because it's the language that everyone can communicate with together. Um, and in for many Jewish peoples, there was no, like Hebrew was used as a lingua franca, kind of, like it's in the Torah, it's like very biblical language. People know some words, but no one grows up, or at the time grew up speaking Hebrew. And so it was only used every once in a while in between people, but not like on a daily level. Um, and he, but Hebrew, despite the fact that no one actually like grew up speaking it, seemed like the optimal language to use because all the other languages that are tied to the Jewish ethnicity are only tied to certain um, like ethnicities of Jewishness. So for example, um, Yiddish is the language commonly spoke among Ashkenazi Jews. Ladino, which we talked about when we talked about Ordal a little bit last month, um, is the language spoken among Sephardic Jews, but they don't share that. So Hebrew seemed to be the language that could be most naturally used. Um, I think it's really like such an interesting process and it's like centuries long and it didn't just start with the creation of Israel. Um, but there were like several steps to that. Part of it is that Hebrew is a religious language or was at the time. And so there were words for like God and all of like the biblical stories and like all of that. But there weren't words for like common things you do every day. Um, so we had to come up with those words and like that itself was a very political process. And part of that created mean creating institutions that would teach the word, like decide together collectively what those words were. I think that's um, always like so fun. Like I know when I'm in yeah. Ireland and I see like signs in Irish, I remember once like seeing a sign that was like barbecue, but in Irish and it was like, <laughs> yeah, someone's had to just make that up in yeah, more recent years. Because like we do that too kind of naturally is the wrong word, but like someone came up with a word for computer. Right. Um, but you kind of make those up as they come along and it's mm -hmm. not necessarily like, oh, we're like missing hundreds of words that we need to use. Right. Um, obviously, like the creation of or the um, revitalization of Irish or Gaelic is another example of language revitalization. And like it's kind of similar to Hebrew in that it's like deeply tied to national identity. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like the dominant group in the country trying to bring back a language yeah. that was gone. 
Mm, Hebrew is different because it was just like disappeared fully. Whereas like there's people have been speaking Gaelic and like mm. forever. Um, so yeah, um, through the 19th century, as people were coming to what is now Israel, which was at the time mandatory Palestine, um, they were creating these societies to kind of get Hebrew to be, with the goal of having Hebrew to be the language that people learned at, from childhood. And when the state of Israel was created, they um, started off with like a quite high proportion of Hebrew speakers because it was mostly people who already lived there. But the moment other Jews came from around the world, the Hebrew, like they had this challenge, like how do we teach both children who are growing up here Hebrew, but also adults? Um, the way they did this was through the military primarily like largely because everyone has to participate in the Israeli military and so you did language learning in there and you you had to get to a level where you could speak like colloquially like every day um, and if you finish your military service and you still weren't good enough you had to go to school to learn Hebrew um, and so that was like a big way that they kind of tried to get people to have good Hebrew skills. And now Hebrew is the kind of the main language of Israel. It's the official language. Millions of native Hebrew speakers live in Israel now. Um, it's become so dominant that they've actually like um, forced the people who like the Arabic speaker or people who live in Israel to also learn Hebrew which then causes like a language death amongst their communities because they speak Hebrew less or sorry, Arabic less. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a huge part of the political project that is creating Israel as a nation. Um, and just kind of a force of will to get something that no one spoke into like the common parlance. Um, it's a really interesting example. The other example I wanted to talk about is that of Maori, or um, it's called Te Rio in Maori is what they call their own language. Um, and so this is the language of the indigenous peoples of New Zealand. Um, this is a very different kind of story um, because unlike in Israel where the nation itself has always tried to make Hebrew the dominant language. The story in of Maori or Maori is that of trying really hard to often fight the state to get a language to be spoken. So obviously pre-colonization, this was the dominant language. Everyone spoke it. As people, as colonizers came, Europeans came, it was an important language of trade as people like needed to um, communicate with the locals there who had all the information and knowledge. This is also when they started to kind of begin to write it down um, because of the desire and need to like communicate across, like back to Europe and stuff like that. Um, and like to send letters like across the many islands of New Zealand. But then eventually Europeans became the dominant peoples through the process of often violent colonization and um, the language kind of disappeared um, or it became less and less used. So pre-World War II, most Maori spoke their native tongue at home 
but um, it was already declining then. But then after that, it got significantly worse. Um, it was illegal to teach, to speak in Maori at school or to teach it. Um, you People talk often about encountering violence and bigotry if they spoke it outside of their homes instead of English. So it was really, there was a steep decline in the amount of people who were speaking it. Um, and it bottoms out at around like only 20% or even less of Maori people were speaking their native language. Um, in nineteen in the 1970s, there was this, what they called the Maori Renaissance, um, which was about language, but about just generally like a cultural renaissance of like stories, activism, like a desire for representation and political power. And so this part of that they were they decided was language revitalization, because being able to speak to each other in their native tongue, on the tongue of their peoples, was an important part of continuing their culture. Um, and then they they did this really interesting system in the 1980s called Language Nest or Kohanga Rio, um, and these are like models that have been used in other indigenous contexts so in Australia and in North America. Basically, they're daycares where you young Maori children go um, and are taken care of by Maori elders who then pass the language on to them. And so it kind of functions as this double purpose of like childcare, which we like know if you've listened to our podcast is deeply political, um, and language revitalization in an attempt to get more people to speak the language. Um, and so this model and then the just general kind of new political um, power that they're seeking led to the 1987 Maori Language Act, um, which was passed after it was determined that the language was a treasure or valued possession under the one of the treaties that was signed during early colonial times. Um, and the language, this act um, made Maori an official language of New Zealand, which, to my knowledge, it is one of the only, like, indigenous languages that is an official language. In Canada, French and English are official languages. None of, we also have the problem that, like, there are hundreds of indigenous languages in Canada where there is just this one, like, there are dialects, I think, of Maori, but there's, like, this one strong one. Um... And I, so the government recognizes Maori, but it doesn't like always recognize the necessity for helping with language revitalization. Then since the 1980s, there's been like a really fraught relationship between the P Maori people and the government. Um, in one article I read, they referred to um, the crown as leaden footed and they to the point that um, really the reason why Ma the Maori language hasn't survived is that of politics, not of a linguistic problem. So as the government doesn't get funding or increases ac accessibility or um, doesn't fund these language nests that this community has built, um, they stand in the way of the revitalization of the language. And 
So that's kind of the grassroots movement. The government is very resistant. There's a bit of a change with the most recent government. Uh, as a stat for you, in 2013, only 3.7% of all New Zealanders spoke Maori fluently. And that was about 23.7% of the Maori people. Um, and the language became a really kind of touch point issue in the 20, I think it was the 2018 election. Um, as there was lots of debates about like funding these language nests, but also whether it should be a compulsory language in school, which is quite a common practice for like second languages in, um, many nations. So in Canada, if you are in the Anglo part, you learn French. If you're in the French part, you learn English. In, um, even in like the United States, you learn Spanish, which is really at the time that this was kind of a codified thing that people did was the second most dominant language in U.S. And you see this even more in like Southern states. Um, so this became a really big political issue. The labor government won, who, if you've been following New Zealand politics at all, you know they're like quite progressive. Um, and they made it a goal for Maori to be a more prominent language in the country. So by 2040, they want to have a 20% fluency like, not just amongst the Maori people, but amongst everyone. Um, and by 2025, they want it to be taught in schools. So that's actually quite soon. Um, very soon. There's also um, this kind of new push has brought um, Maori to uh, descendants of settlers, like white people in New Zealand. Um, it's becoming more common to, like, do greetings in Maori. So... Kaiora means hello. Um, Nagmihi, I can have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly, means thanks. Um, there are popular bands that do their um, songs in Maori. This one I thought was really cool when Moana came out, which is like about Polynesian islands. They did a Maori version and it yeah. sold out. That is so beautiful. And also it reminds was... me of going to the museum this month. And mm -hmm. seeing uh, a little girl in the um, African section saying, I saw that on Moana. And her mom Aww. just turning to her and going, this is Africa, sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the grass skirts. Yeah, she was trying. She was trying. She was trying. Um, that's really cute. The other one I found that was kind of funny is that McDonald's, in the McDonald's in Hawks Bay has a bilingual menu now. Um, very cool. There's obviously been like pushback as there would be in any kind of settler society of people saying that the increased use of Maori is like threatening to New Zealand culture, yada, yada. So it's not um, all been sunshine and roses. And there's been like pushback from the Maori people of like, this needs to be really not just kind of a symbolic politics, but an internalized politics. One of the kind of really uh, not well thought out things that happened was they made like, which we have here in Vancouver as well for the Squamish people. They like designed a police car with like Maori language on it, but then also like symbols. Mm -hmm. And the Maori people are like, overrepresented in the carceral system in New yeah, Zealand like it's a, a big cringe. problem it's deeply cringe um Oof. 
and just, yeah. So there's stuff like that, which obviously is a bit, um, kind of not, they didn't really think about what that actually meant. Yeah, it's very symbolic politics. Um, I like this quote from Janelle Demas, who's a Maori activist. She says, no matter how tokenistic it is, the language uptake has to happen first. Hmm. Um, so this kind of, this project of revitalization is necessary for further politics of reconciliation. Um, and it's cool to see a nation that's trying to incorporate it, not just for the peoples whose language it is, but for everyone. Um, as like a re-understanding of like, another sort of nation building of like an understanding of the history of the nation um so those were my that was my little talk on language revitalization i thought it was really interesting and like a cool way that politics comes together um and people a lot of grassroots movements towards like preservation of culture which is always really interesting yeah very interesting thank you for that michael this month a fitness brand peloton made headlines for what feels like the umpteenth time over the past few years when they announced they'd be replacing their ceo and laying off 2800 staff so today for our pop culture segment we are doing a deep dive on that and it all starts with one question what is peloton now, I'm sure most of you know this, but just to give mm-hmm. a little recap, Peloton is a fitness brand that was founded in 2012 in New York City. They've got lots and lots of products, but you're probably most familiar with their iconic exercise bikes that have these large screens that broadcast fitness classes that you can join. The base model for that bike is about $1,500, plus there's various levels of monthly membership subscriptions. So I do know like a lot of people who have the Peloton app and they pay like $12.99 just to have those workouts on an app. You don't need the bike to go with mm-hmm. it. I believe our uh, good friend Becca from The Bachelor, who is on the Chatty Broads <laughs> podcast, mm-hmm. has talked about how she's kind of gamed the system by... Uh, buying a, a cheaper bike and then using the Peloton workouts this with This is it. a common hack people have. Yes. Yeah, it's a fun one. But, you know, despite these little hacks, Peloton are doing pretty good for themselves. They mm-hmm. are considered a unicorn, which is a startup valued at $1 billion or more. But I think to get an understanding of where they are now, we kind of need to jump back in time to 2019, which to me is when peloton really exploded i think they had you know had obviously a very uh, good presence before then but they really became the talk of the town in late 2019 when their holiday commercial went viral for all the wrong reasons so i'm sure you'll remember this but it featured a man gifting his wife a peloton for christmas and then her spending the next year recording snippets uh, of her workout which then turned out to be a gift for him the next christmas and a lot of people call this out for being sexist and dystopian one twitter Mm -hmm. user commented Nothing says maybe you should lose a few pounds than gifting your already rail-thin life partner a Peloton. It had a lot of strange levels to it. Uh, All of this discussion was enhanced by a particular screenshot where the Mm -hmm. main actress, Monica Ruiz, was pulling a very worried expression. And then Ryan Reynolds actually hired Ruiz for an ad for his liquor brand, Aviation Gin, that featured her hanging out with friends and sort of pulling that very 
worried expression thinking about the memory of her harrowing peloton experience and then downing a couple of aviation shins nice so despite that kind of strange holiday season, 2020 was a great year for Peloton. They became a pandemic darling because people couldn't go to the gym anymore. So they had to turn to the Peloton. And this is when the company became profitable for the first time. Their value doubled to well over a billion. Their stock rose almost 400%. Basically, when everyone else was having a pretty rough time during the big old quarantine and the initial pandemic freak out, they were doing pretty well. They had a product that really worked for people's lifestyle needs at that point. Unfortunately, things started going like a tiny bit downhill towards the end of the year when news of a vaccine emerged. So people, you know, weren't rushing in line anymore to get Pelotons. There had previously been like wait lists for them. They were thinking, I'll just hang on a little bit longer and I'll be back in the gym in March. And I guess that has been somewhat the case, but we are still very much in pandemic times. Their stock began to fall a little bit towards the end of 2020, and we also saw more competitors entering the market and hacks like the one we discussed becoming pretty widely known on apps like TikTok. 2021 was another very interesting year for Peloton. (laughs) In May, they had to recall about uh, 125,000 of a certain treadmill model after the Consumer Product Safety Commission reported that those treadmills were involved in about 70 injuries and the death of a child, which is very tragic. Mm-hmm. And then in December 2021, an episode of Sex in the City reboot and Just Like That aired, where the <laughs> character Mr. Big collapsed and died after riding a Peloton bike. Yeah. A very iconic moment in television, not what we expected turning into was it the first episode and seeing a character who had been with us since 1998 drop dead. But yeah, the shock was felt. Their shares fell by 11.3% the next day. And then Ryan Reynolds, remember him from earlier, immediately jumped in and helped Peloton make a humorous ad where Fans were assured that exercise is actually good for cardiovascular health and that Mr. Big was alive. However, these ads had to be pulled when Mr. Big actor Chris Noth was accused of sexual assault by two women. So really horrible situations going on there. Yeah. And not ideal. In 2022 this year, we're only in February and... Things are still looking a little bit grim. In January, it was announced they'd be ceasing production on a number of products, including their trademark bike, just for a short amount of time, due to a reduction in demand. Essentially, they just didn't need to be pumping out anymore right now. And then earlier this month, the Financial Times published a report about what they are calling Project Tin Man, which was Peloton's plan to conceal rust in exercise bikes. Apparently these were on internal parts and Mm. they didn't affect the actual operation of the bike. But I guess like the uh, cover up felt a little succession when you read about it. Yes. Also this month, as I mentioned in our intro, 
2,800 employees were laid off in an effort to save the country about 800 million. Uh, the country, the company. Sorry, I apologize. Peloton, <laughs> Peloton Nation. Peloton Nation. It's like Bachelor Nation, but Peloton Nation. Mm-hmm. You know what? They probably call it Peloton Nation. People are are pretty into those exercise classes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, 2,800 employees were laid off in an effort to save the company about 800 million dollars annually. That included about 20% of its corporate workforce. And most bizarrely, and I think the thing that people (laughs) were speaking about on social media the most, was that everyone who was laid off was given a year free Peloton membership, which like, thanks, I guess. Like, they didn't have to do that. Everyone was getting their severance and stuff. But that Mm -hmm. kind of sweetener just feels so strange. I mean... I feel if I was laid off by a company, I'm not sure I'd be signing up to do classes with them and Mm-mm. keep supporting them. I don't know. Maybe people are are kinder than I am. The CEO and co-founder John Foley also stepped down from his position and was replaced by Barry McCarthy, who is a former Spotify executive. I think kind of an interesting move since Spotify is in a little hot water at the beginning of 2022 as well, due to its support of the Joe Rogan podcast and claims of proliferating misinformation there. So that's basically what's been happening with Peloton. To think about why that is significant, I want to bring in another brand that has been making some big changes lately. And I, I have a lot of warm and long-held feelings towards this one, so I hope I'm not too biased mm-hmm. in my reporting, but it is Glossier, the cult skincare and makeup brand. Uh, Mike and I visited the flagship store together. We had a lot of fun we there. Did. Yeah, so this is a brand that was founded back in 2014 by Emily Weiss, who was, fun fact, the super intern on the hills, and... Mm-hmm. The brand has later, you know, since become a unicorn. They've helped define this hugely popular look of the past few years, which is brushed up eyebrows and an incredibly dewy face and lips. There's been a lot of people parroting this, saying it's basically just rubbing Vaseline all over yourself. There was definitely a variation of the Gossip Girl meme that just has Leighton Meester saying Oil Girl instead of... uh, saying affirmative to Blake Leslie's ask if it is Glossier. Mm-hmm. But they've become, you know, iconic for a lot of other reasons. There's the stores that my, that Micah and I have been to, these very futuristic buildings where all the pl- employees wear pink boiler suits. They have very iconic packaging. There's the millennial pink bubble wrap pouch that I'm sure you've seen mm-hmm. around. Yes. People use it as like accessories even. But they have also had a pretty difficult few penny D years. They had to close their stores during the pandemic and some like the flagship NY store uh, haven't reopened since. There were some pretty serious claims of racism and toxic work culture during the Black Lives Matter movement of summer 2020. The company responded to that uh, saying they will be donating $1 million to black resistance causes and black owned beauty brands and have established a grant for black owned businesses. Their Glossier Playline, which deviated from their minimalist core range and was more about glitter and color, was discontinued in December 2021 after just a couple years on the market. And then in January of this year, they too laid off a lot of staff. They laid off 80 corporate staff members, which for them is like a third of their company. And they were mainly from the tech side of things. 
um, the CEO issued an email just saying that they had prioritized in the wrong areas and it was a misstep and they need to correct that. So I think that, you know, having brought in the second example to sort of strengthen this argument, I think the thing that fascinates me is seeing how the public sentiment and support of these two brands that have been really part of kind of aspirational millennial identity Mm -hmm. have faced these stumbling blocks. And it got me thinking about other brands that we have that have been so a part of our identities and then have fallen. So we've seen Blockbuster and Blackberry when we were speaking as people in their mid twenties were huge when we were kids, you know, Mm -hmm. it was the, the weekend trip to Blockbuster to pick out videos to borrow was so exciting. And, you know, when we were getting a little bit older, it was everyone wanted a Blackberry. And then when we were kind of in our late teen years, we have the Tumblr era. And I think that site is experiencing a bit of a revival, but it, you know, fell off in, in the way the trends do. And then we're kind of seeing um, brands that have been really important the past few years, you know, either during the pandemic or slightly before, also face obstacles. And like... I don't want to blow this into like a big thing or get like super, super off track, but there has been a lot of talk this month about an impending vibe shift. I'm sure you're familiar mm-hmm. with this um, phrase that I guess is like grading people in the same way that Chugi did last year, which we also yes. spoke about, by the way. And I think this kind of ties into it. So to brief you on the vibe shift, trend forecaster Sean Monahan reported last year that we would basically be entering a new era of style and culture soon where the current dominant trend would die and something new would emerge. He wasn't sure exactly what. Um, there's been a lot of talk of this maybe being indie sleaze, like a revival of this early aughts, Chloe 70 smoking outside a dive bar in the East Village kind of vibe. Um, I guess to me, I don't really know how applicable that is on like a world stage, but yeah, exactly. It's all a little confusing. Um, but the cut wrote about it uh, this month and everyone went pretty crazy, pretty confused. As I said, I'm still pretty confused. I was some, I saw a great tweet about the cut, which was told to me, which is basically the cut writes about, um, the whatever is happening in a six block radius in Brooklyn. Um, so maybe there's a vibe shift right there. Right. But who knows? Yeah, I mean, especially like the examples that Sean Monaghan like spoke about were very like Brooklyn. Like he was mentioning specific mm-hmm. bars in Williamsburg that defined an era. And obviously that doesn't apply to somebody in Ohio or someone like in Australia or Canada. I think there's been like better examples before of us like moving in eras um you know for example the era when blockbuster and blackberry were really big that kind of like early aughts era it i think like something that encapsulates that is the iconic scene in the oc where they run into paris hilton in a (laughs) nightclub and she takes a selfie on a flip phone like that kind of encapsulates that era and i think that was maybe a little bit more uh, all-encompassing than some of the ones that have been suggested in this report. I think we all had a very similar blockbuster BlackBerry experience. 
A lot of people also pointed out that this idea of a vibe shift is just aging, you know, trends change as Mm -hmm. time goes on. And usually these are guided by the young people. So sometimes they don't even have anything to do with you as you grow older. But yeah, I guess I'm interested in how the rise and fall of certain brands interplays with this. Like, obviously, we kind of think of our childhoods with reference to a lot of these brands like Blockbuster. And then we've kind of had the past few years where these there's these very like pristine, subtly aspirational companies which have existed at a time where that aesthetic has been very popular. And now it kind of seems like a shift is coming in both arenas. Like I don't want to make culture too much about companies and stuff because that feels like mm-hmm. gross and like capitalistic. But it's like we kind of only let certain companies thrive um, if they align with like our current vibes. And like, I don't know, maybe there's like a chicken and an egg scenario there that I don't know the answer to. And I'm sure there's like professionals who probably do, but I just do find it interesting how we're seeing, yeah, brands that kind of become so tied in with a certain vibe. And I know we spoke before about the photo dump coming in. And maybe that's when things like Peloton, which is about this kind of aspirational, very clean, very pristine lifestyle, start to feel not so relevant, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. Um, I guess like if we are on the cusp of another vibe shift, it's obviously going to be something guided by Gen Z. And I am interested to see like what will the brands that they allow to thrive or the ones that I don't know, maybe they let shape them. It's hard to say how this all works. But I think like for me, one would be CeraVe, the no frills, Mm -hmm. very basic skincare brand. They've had a really big couple years on TikTok. And I think these younger consumers are a little tired of gimmicks and really like that something like CeraVe is cheap and works, you know? I'm not sure how much they're buying into brands as personalities or brands as personas. Maybe they are. Like, I I, I guess we're technically Gen Z, but I do feel very out of touch. So <laughs> maybe they are. But to me, I can understand, like, young people having this, I guess, like, anti- corporate vibe where they're like okay this brand works it's cheap that's good I don't need the brand to speak to me as a friend but what do you think Micah I have two thoughts that are polar opposites I love it one is unfortunately like she in mega fast fashion true yeah which is kind of the opposite like ethos as CeraVe in that like well, one, but it's cheap, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, we've done oh, a whole yeah. episode it's, about fast fashion. We've done fashion a whole episode. <laughs> Shein is a fast fashion company. Um, or, like, similarly, like, Pretty Little Things, which is the UK version, essentially. Um, and, like, the kind of I should have everything at my doorstep. Mm. Capitalism, if it's going to exist, should serve my whims. 
kind of vibe. It's just so popular on TikTok. Um, I know. I really want to dig into that because it it seems like people are, you know, really passionate about social justice issues, but seem so willing to overlook it for something like Shein and so willing to find excuses for it. I will link a or put good YouTube video, like a video essay about this, about like the common defense of fast fashion is that it's classist to be anti-fast fashion because only certain people can afford to like spend good money on clothes. Oh, this is very similar Um, to like the it's more size inclusive yet the people that I see with the $700 Shein hauls are like not the ones who can't afford other clothes and are not the ones who are struggling to find clothes in their clothes in their size you know yes um also the fact that like yes maybe it's affordable for people in the west but you're literally paying and yeah. maybe not even paying anything to people um who are making your clothing mm-hmm. as someone who i didn't say this in um the intro but has spent the last month sewing clothing by hand mm-hmm. i'm intimately aware about how um labor intensive it is it does Anyways, that right like when it does, i'm really like crocheting i'm like i cannot spend five dollars on a top anymore like this has taken me hours to do um it's kind of like very like in the same hippie way of like i've grown my own vegetables i now know what it costs right okay. so this transitions nicely into my other thought so one is she and they seem to love that whatever the other one is like brands and they're still brands, but that, like, incorporate social justice mm. in some way. Um, there's, like, ones that do it very, like, with, like, actual numbers in front of them. So, like, they're environmental organizations that check. So, like, 1% for the planet actually yeah. checks that we're giving 1% to the planet. Um, stuff like that. But then there's just, like, kind of the ethos of social justice. I'm doing good for the world. Those feel... Instead of, like, Peloton and Glossier, which is, like, I'm doing good for me, yeah. it's, like, I'm doing good for others. That's um, interesting because I think um, I've been vegetarian for, like, eight, nine years, and it's only the past few years that I've seen, like, really good meat alternatives or, like, the mm-hmm. whole oat milk boom turning up, and those are all kind of marketed on an environmental angle. Um, or we're seeing companies – I think we're seeing, like, a lot of innovation in companies making things like reusable dishcloths or, like, reusable ear swaps, um, a lot of, like, plastic-free items. I, I think mm-hmm. that stuff is very interesting. So I agree with you on that, Micah. That's a really good point. Yeah. So we'll see. I'm interested. The vibe shift. Is it happening? Who knows? It's not coming for me. I haven't left the Tumblr one. So (laughs) it's absolutely not coming for me. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll be fine. But yeah, it is interesting to see which which brands will thrive. I think the kind of three different aspects they brought up here all have possibilities. I really hope it's the environmental um, doing good for others in the planet one, obviously, because I really do feel passionately about the innovation that's happening there. So Mm -hmm. fingers crossed the next vibe shift is actually making your own clothes and growing your own vegetables and buying plastic free everything. That's my vibe shift. Yeah. Okay. I'll allow that into the Tumblr aesthetic that (laughs) Picnic Hanging Rock pulled me even deeper back into, but it's Mm. fine. Yeah. So 
that's our trend forecasting. We should we should start a trend forecasting company, Micah. Different things can be trendy. <laughs> Boom. Trademarking that right now. Alrighty, that is it for another episode of Different Things Can Be Sad. We will be back at the end of March. But Micah, what does your March look like? What's going to be happening? Oh, I'm going to the warmth of Arizona for a little bit, which will be very nice. Exciting. Maybe we'll have to record while you're there so that I can soak it up through the screen. That'd be cool. (laughs) See Um, the sunshine. My mom is coming to visit and it's my birthday. So great month already. Yeah, we're going to have a fun end of the month, I think. So we'll tell you all about it next time. Uh, until then, you can keep up with us on the Instagram. Our podcast is at DTCBS Podcast. My Instagram is at Yasmin Lomax. And I'm at Micah Hahn. And we will be in your ear holes next month. Bye.